Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has been humming the ILGWU theme song all day. And don't worry, you will be too when you finish this episode. It's my gift to you. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 77. And today's special guest is, well, a recurring guest, a Close Horse all-star, Alex of St. Evans. She's been on the pod a few times now, and she has a recurring column at closehorse.world called Vintage Detective. You know her. You all know her. She's back today to talk about the exciting history of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. That's a mouthful, but so is the abbreviation, the I-L-G-W-U. Whew, I have to like really take a deep breath before I say it every time. <laughs> We'll also take some detours through Sex in the City and Costco. We're going all over the place here. We'll talk about the history of garment work, how unions changed that, and how our clothes are made today. And we'll also talk about why you, yes, you, should care about clothing. There's so much to talk about. So this episode is going to be a little bit different because we have so much to discuss. I won't be sharing any work stories in this one, and I won't be doing like a special presentation either. I just didn't want to cut up this conversation. I wanted to leave it intact. So that's what this episode is going to be. But I still have a ton of labor month stuff to cover, like at-will employment, salary gaps, ageism, toxic work culture, the harm of working too much, and so on. So I've decided we'll be continuing to cover labor stuff as we move into June, also known as Personal Style Month. But don't worry, we'll be talking about style stuff too. And while we're talking about style, I would love to hear from all of you for June. What has your style journey been? How has it changed? Where do you see it going next? How has knowing the real truth about the apparel industry changed the way you dress? Call the Clothes Horse Hotline or record a voice memo and send it via email. Also, the first episode of June will be entirely work stories, so please keep sending them my way. In particular, I'm trying to group a bunch of retail stories together. I have some good ones already. I would love to have a few more. So tell me about your retail experiences. You know, I worked a lot of retail. I have a lot of stories, but you don't want to just hear my stories. And I want to hear stories that aren't mine. I want to hear yours. So 
I know we've got a ton of former retail workers and current retail workers in our community. So get those messages to me in the next week or so, so I can start putting together that episode. I think it's going to be fun and interesting and probably infuriating. (laughs) All the the great things. (laughs) You can find both my email address and the hotline number in the show notes. Before we jump into my very exciting conversation with Alex, I just want to take a moment to thank some of my newest supporters on Patreon. First is Maggie O'Gara, who I'm very honored to have as a patron. She's one of my favorite style accounts on Instagram. She's always putting together a very cute upcycled outfit. And today in particular, as I'm recording this, she posted a super cute two-piece set that she created from a dress. It's so good. She made it look so easy. Thank you so much for your support, Maggie. Next is Laura Morales, who is the owner of Shop Lady Stardust. And let me tell you, Laura has been making some really cool upcycled clothing out of recycled textiles, like so cool. So you should totally check her out. That's Shop Lady Stardust. Thank you so much for your support, Laura. Last but not least is Christina Pashanova, an international patron who sent me the nicest message. She said, I just want to say thank you for your insane amount of work and amazing content you're bringing to the table with Clothes Horse and the department. I'm a small vintage reseller from Germany with my Vinted and Depop Instagram shop, The Vision of 90s. I've binge listened to your podcast nonstop and I freaking love everything about it. You're so brave and such a strong, intelligent, and beautiful woman. Keep doing what you're doing and I pray and manifest that you'll never need a corporate job ever again. Much love from Germany, your loyal follower and supporter, Christina. P.S. You have the most amazing podcast voice ever. Just saying. (laughs) Thank you so much, Christina. Reading that just made my day. And people do say I have a nice podcast voice. And I'm always surprised by that because I guess we just all hate the sound of our own voice. Isn't that weird? I wonder why that is. I'm going to have to do some digging into that. We all need to know, right? (laughs) Just a casual hobby research project I just gave myself. Anyway, we want to know. All right. Well, if you want to be as cool as Christina, Laura, and Maggie by supporting the work I do here on Close Horse, please consider joining my Patreon. You can find more info at patreon.com slash Podcast. Or you can send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. And of course, thank you to all of you who already support me in all kinds of amazing ways with motivating messages, cute animal photos, artificial fruit you've seen out in the wild, leaving a review or star rating on Apple Podcasts, or just hanging out with me on social media. I'm so grateful for all of you. It's the best part of the last year of my life. Okay, well, let's get into this conversation with Alex. I will say I have a little treat for all of you that hopefully won't annoy you that much. I tracked down some old ILGWU commercials, like, yeah, television commercials from the 70s and early 80s, and I converted them to audio files, and I sprinkled them through our conversation. They are just so cool. I thought you had to hear them. Plus, When was the last time you saw an ad for a union on television? All I'm getting on Hulu right now are Fabletics ads, and they make me angry. (laughs) Ask Dustin. Poor Dustin. (laughs) All right. Well, let's do this. Let's do this conversation. 
right. Well, today I have a very special return guest, a close horse all-star. Alex, why don't you remind everyone who you are? Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Alex. I This is my third appearance, I believe, on the pod. <laughs> Just a regular. I'm, <laughs> I'm also a contributor to the Close Horse blog, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, I run a vintage brand called St. Evans, and I am, I guess, the Close Horse resident um, labor union nerd. <laughs> I mean, I love it. That's a great <laughs> title to have. Personally. <laughs> um, I'm excited to talk to you today about unions and in particular, a very special union. Yes. So today we're going to be talking about the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which is usually abbreviated as ILGWU. It's just a mouthful either way. <laughs> it so, really is. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's honestly kind of hard to even say. So for the sake of clarity, let's just call it the union for the yes, episode. Um, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't repeat all of those words. No, no, it's that. too much. It's too much. Every time we even had to discuss this beforehand, I was like, like, I'm going to skip a word. Uh, I'm getting stressed out. The abbreviation doesn't help. No, it's, 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 it's super clunky. It's not. I feel like a lot of the later unions were like really clever acronyms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this definitely. is not one of them. I mean, it started in the early 1900s. I don't know that they were like thinking about how catchy they would make the name. <laughs> they weren't thinking about the marketing possibilities. They were sure. not at the time. <laughs> So before I start getting into this super history-heavy topic, um, I just wanted to address something that I see a lot online, especially in the comments section on social media. So I see a lot of people coming with this sentiment that it's just clothes or that fashion is this you know, frivolous thing and that especially on accounts, like bigger accounts um, that do discuss fashion and politics, maybe like Diet Prada, you mm -hmm. see people come in with comments like, oh, why do you have to make everything about politics? Uh, why do you have to make yeah. everything about race, about gender? And when you look at the history of clothing, the history of garment work, you can see that no one's making anything about anything. This is just how it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a great way to summarize it. It's not that people are more PC now or more sensitive now. Um, historically, clothing has always been political. It's mm -hmm. political from the moment it's made. Uh, it's political depending on who's wearing it, why they're wearing it. Uh, at one point in history, it was political. Political to not wear a girdle. Uh, mini skirts were a political mm -hmm. statement. Uh, a woman showing her belly button on TV was political. Um, I'm actually reading a book right now that I highly recommend. It's called Liberated Threads by Tanisha C. Ford. And it looks into how Black women's style was and still is deeply tied to global politics. So, yeah. you know, this conversation that we're going to have about unions, I feel like it's just really important to preface it with the fact that um, clothing is really important. It's an essential part of our survival. I, it's, I feel like clothes aren't really seen as a basic necessity the way food and housing is. But mm -hmm. the reality is, is in our society now, clothing is essential. You, you need clothes to participate in society. If you want to work, if you want to grocery shop, if you want access to health care, you have to wear clothes. It's true. It's, I'd never thought about it, but it is, it's mandatory. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, there are exceptions. You know, you could live in an amazing nudist colony, which is super cool, but that just doesn't apply to most people. Definitely not. You know, even beyond it just being necessary, what you wear can also really determine your life. It can determine your opportunities. Um, How you present yourself to the world is based in what you wear, and that can get you a job. It can make you money. It can make you friends. So I think it's important to frame this conversation in the sense that just to remind ourselves that garment workers are essential and that the lives and the work of garment workers, uh, it should matter to everyone because it affects everyone. We all wear clothes and this isn't, you know, it, it, we're so detached now from who makes our clothing and where it comes from that we don't think about the fact that like this is something that every single person uses every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a massive industry. It affects a lot of people. And I always say that it really is a case study for how capitalism can go awry because it's got all of the elements. Absolutely. Really, it affects everybody. We all wear clothes. It's not a distant thing. It's not, you know, oh, not my problem or I don't care about clothes or I don't care about fashion because it's so much more than just the garment itself. That's right. That's why we talk about it all the time. I definitely get friends who are like, oh, I, you know, I'd love to listen to your podcast, but I'm just not really into fashion. And I'm like, no, 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 this isn't like that. We're not like, have you seen the latest collections? This is a political podcast, I think. (laughs) It is. And the thing is, is that even even the things that do seem, you know, not super meaningful or silly, like people are like, oh, you know, runway fashion or something like Sex in the City or Cosmo or whatever, those – those are important in the sense that they have cultural and artistic value mm-hmm. and they they shape how our society functions. They affect how people feel, how people think, what people are spending their money on. So even though you might not be personally interested in it, it is actually important. It's just really essential that we kind of reframe the conversation into fashion not being just like a frivolous thing that girls like that's not actually meaningful to life or society in any way. Oh, totally. And I just wanted to add that if I had more time, like if they added one more day and made each week week eight days long, I would totally do a podcast about sex in the city (laughs) because I feel like it's such a social commentary. And especially like 20 years later, there's so much to unpack there. That's if I had more free time. I don't see it happening. But (laughs) I, okay, confession, I've never watched Sex in the City. Wow. I know. And I, it's one of those things where like I probably will at some point. I don't really have anything against it. I've just never actually done it. Um, But And I think even then, that is an example of how influential and important it is to our culture because even though I've never watched it, I could tell you, like, all the main characters. Exactly. Like, I have a general idea of their style, and there are a lot of looks from the show that are referenced really frequently, have have inspired – you know, designers, artists, other people in the time afterwards and in good and bad ways. And so I think that that just is even more of an example that even though I haven't seen it, it I still have a really good understanding of, you know, the show and why it was so important. Along the same lines, when we talk about clothing, people who are like, I'm not into fashion, I'm not into clothes, I'm not into style, they have specific things that they want to wear. You know, they have an idea Mm -hmm. in their minds of what they wear that makes them feel the best. You know, maybe they want to blend in. Maybe they want to stand out. Maybe they want to seem professional. Maybe they want to seem like they have more money than they do, whatever. 
every person, whether they say they care about clothes or not, definitely cares about clothes. Absolutely. And, you know, even if you are very simple and all you want is a white t-shirt, all white t-shirts are not created equally. Yeah. So, you know, there's, they're so different yeah. and even something that, that seems that simple, it's actually a pretty monumental task figuring out what it is that you're looking for. You know, what do you like and what do you not like? And the way that the industry is structured affects what you have access to. And also, you know, what goes on behind the scenes of that t-shirt. Mm-hmm. It's not just a t-shirt. It's someone grew cotton. It's someone was exposed to toxic chemicals to make the rayon. It's, Someone was, you know, toiling away in a factory to sew the shirt together. It's all of these different steps that make it more than just a t-shirt. That's right. That's right. That's why we should all care about it. Yes, it is very important. So, yeah, I feel like that was just something that I wanted to put out there because as I get into this, I just want to make it really clear that this this story, the I'm just going to say it one more time. International Ladies Garment Workers Union story. Um, it's not just about some seamstresses who wanted to get paid more. This is a story about women's rights, about workers' rights. It's the protection of children, the fight for immigrants, the fight for ethnic and religious minorities. This union was largely comprised of women, and they came together to fight against um, government corruption. They were fighting organized crime syndicates. They were going up against abusive men in a deeply misogynistic time in history. This fight was really risky. It was really dangerous. And sometimes it was literally a matter of life and death. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's very exciting. (laughs) I mean, these ladies were, they were going up against violent police officers. They were fighting the literal mafia. I mean, this work was really grueling. It was physically and emotionally taxing. And it provided such a pivotal service to the American public. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's so much more than just like, we want more money or we want less hours. You know, it's, it's much bigger than that. Wow. This is going to be a very exciting episode. I can't wait to get into this. It's honestly, it is really exciting. It's funny because I was laughing. I have, you know, this book that I've been reading, um, which was, we briefly talked about this before we started recording, but I was looking to see if I could find a book specifically about this union. And I was only able to find one book that does not look like it was very widely released. Um, I guess it's not really a hot literary topic for people (laughs) out there. But I have this book here, um, Fighting for the Union Label, The Women's Garment Industry and the ILGWU in (laughs) Pennsylvania. And the cover of the book has this old lady with this Buy American Union label uh, newsletter in front of her. And it's funny because you look at this and you're like, okay, you've got this this grandma and her glasses with the union newsletter. And, you know, once you actually get into it, it is, it's dramatic. There's a lot going on there. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's way more of an interesting story than it looks like on the surface. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait. I love a union story. <laughs> so, um, okay, we'll go back to the beginning and just do like a really brief uh, history. Um, the union was founded in 1900 in New York City. Uh, New York City was where most of the garment work in America was being done around that time. Um, at the beginning, seven local unions joined together. So there were several thousand workers that initiated the union. Um 
The membership was primarily women. However, I do want to point out that because this was 1900, the leaders of the union were mostly men. Um, of which course. Just, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a bummer because I do think of this as a very female organization. But at the end of the day, um, they needed to get stuff done. They needed to negotiate with higher powers. Um, and yeah, at the time, I think that it did require male leadership just because mm-hmm. women weren't taken seriously. Yeah, yeah. Classic. So the original members were largely European immigrants. It was predominantly Jewish and Italian women. Um, a little bit later in American history, a lot of garment work was taken on by immigrant or migrant populations comprised mostly of Latin American workers from countries like Puerto Rico, Mexico, Dominican Republic, and uh, a lot of Asian workers, mostly mostly uh, ethnically Chinese workers. So these populations make up most of the remaining garment workforce, which is now based out of L.A., there is a little bit left in New York. That's so fascinating because I, as soon as you started talking about New York, I was like, wow, imagine if that were the case today. Yeah. There is a very small garment district left in New York, and there are still some factories based here. Um, one of my friends actually works for a lingerie company called Only Hearts. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know them. Yeah. Yeah. And they are based here, and they actually do all of their manufacturing here in New York, which is really awesome. That is really cool. That is yeah, really they, cool. wow. they make their fabrics, they make their lace um, and everything here in the city, which is really great and also really hard to find these days. Mm-hmm. So there is still some garment work being done in New York, but it's on a you know much, much smaller scale than it was before. And now a majority of the clothing being made in the U.S. is being made in the L.A. area. Mm-hmm. So... The union was one of the largest labor unions in the U.S. It was the first and the biggest union to have a primarily female membership, and it played a really big role in labor history and workers' rights in the U.S. for all workers, not just in the garment industry. Um, The union was, again, centered mostly around the textile industry here in New York, which is where I am. And uh, later it expanded to some of the surrounding areas. So New York State, Jersey, Pennsylvania. Um, And this is really cool. So I I live in New York City. I live in the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. And I had moved to this neighborhood a couple years ago. And I have a uncle who is very into genealogy and it took him several years but he was actually able to find the birth certificates for my great grandfather and his siblings and they were all born here in this neighborhood which is really cool so they were all born like within a few blocks of where i live now and on their birth certificates they're father's occupation was listed and his occupation was uh, depending on the birth certificate it was either shirts or pants so this was in around 1890 so interestingly enough my great-great-grandfather was actually here in this neighborhood working in the garment industry over 100 years ago and I ended up here coincidentally all this time later wow that is wild it's really, and I'm selling clothes, which is also, you know, yeah, crazy. And I, cool. I knew that we had familial ties to New York City, but we didn't really have any details on exactly where they were. So it was just really cool that I happened to be living in this neighborhood when we found out that this is where they were. 
And yeah, I had no idea that I had family that worked in the garment industry, but it makes sense. Um, They immigrated here from Russia, which is now Ukraine, and they were Jewish. So yeah, it all fits that they were, you know, Jewish immigrants living here in this neighborhood making clothes. Wow. Amazing. So when the union was started in 1900, um, you know, the, the industry, it was it was bad. And garment workers have always had a history of being overworked, underpaid, generally abused. Um, without the support of a union, early American factory workers were usually clocking in about 65 to 75 hours a week. Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, a ton of hours, yeah. absolutely no benefits whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um you're looking at 10 to 13 hour days, six or seven days a week. And they were making, you know, the lower paid workers were approximately maybe like what would equate to now as three to four dollars an hour. Wow. And that's with, you know, counting for inflation. Wow. So workers were also often required to supply their own materials. So they had to bring their own needles, their own thread, Um, A lot of workers were actually working in their homes, so they had to have their own sewing machines. And it's interesting because, you know, this is over 100 years ago, and this is still happening. Think about teachers that have to buy their own supplies. Totally, totally. I was reading about the Triangle Shirtwaist fires and how all of those women, you know, would have to bring all of their stuff every day. And it had never occurred to me that you would have to bring your own sewing supplies to work in a factory. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it is. It's just like teachers. The t- The fact that teachers are now like buying crayons and stuff for their students blows my mind. So much time has passed since these workers were, you know, required to bring in their own materials. How is this still happening? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So around that time, um, the 1900 census found that about one in five American children were employed. <laughs> So uh, there were also a lot of kids doing this work. Um, That's a lot of children. That's 20% of children going to work every day. And, you know, these kids were doing all kinds of different jobs. Um, You've got like, you know, you think back on that era and you have like the the paper boy image. But there were a lot of kids who were working in cotton mills, working in factories. Um, A lot of the garment workers that were contracted to work out of their homes had their children work as well. And so you have stories of kids who would go to school during the day and they would go home and they would do labor in their homes with their parents. And that was was their life. They would work as a child. When people are like, I don't want the government involved in my life. What does the government ever do that's good? Why do we need regulations? Like that kind of stuff. I'm like, this is why. Yes. Because otherwise children go to work. Absolutely. And that is just not okay. Someone needs to protect them. So for the people that were working in factories, um, a lot of times the doors to the factory were locked to prevent laborers from doing anything besides work. So this included using the restroom. If you need to go to the bathroom, you had to go and ask for permission. Obviously, if you got up, it was seen as a bad thing. It was seen that, oh, you were distracted. You were, you know, spending time mm-hmm. not working. So you'd obviously want to avoid doing that. And there was this kind of shame placed on that. And, you know, the workers were literally trapped. So you had just mentioned the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. So that was in 1911. And that really 
illuminated how horrendous the conditions were. So for the people that aren't familiar with this story, that was here in New York City. Um, A fire broke out in a factory. The factory was very crowded as they tended to be. All of the workers inside found themselves trapped in this inferno. Uh, They were on the eighth floor. A lot of women jumped to their deaths from the windows. Mm -hmm. Um, 146 workers died. So almost all of these workers were young immigrant women. And this really brought to a head how inhumane the conditions were and led to an increase in people supporting unions, joining unions. Um, It resulted in a lot of picketing. And this was one of the deadliest garment factory incidents in global history until uh, recently, the Rana Plaza factory collapse in 2013, which you've mentioned on the pod before. So... And I think you had you had mentioned in a previous episode how this was not really a widely discussed incident. Rana Plaza? No. Yeah. I mean, I was working in the fashion industry when that happened, and I only knew about it from like CNN.com or something. I and I would say like you know, in comparison to my other coworkers and peers in the industry, I read a lot more current events. I'm, you know, I'm just nerdy like that. <laughs> and so none of them knew about it. We never talked about it. I have not heard someone mention Rana Plaza once while at work. Yeah. And I think another thing too is that, you know, obviously in this day and age, we're really oversaturated. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of news about devastating events that are happening globally very frequently. And so it's very easy to detach yourself and, you know, think, oh, there was a building collapse and a bunch of people died. And that's super sad. And then you kind of move on with your day because it feels like, you know, oh, Bangladesh is very far away. I don't know anyone there. It's not really related to me, even though it's sad. And the thing is, is that these workers were in this building to make the clothes that we buy here. Mm-hmm. They were making clothes for Zara and for you yeah. know, other companies in which the large majority of their customer base is here in the US. So it does have to do with us, very much so. And the only reason that these workers were being put in these conditions and being forced to work in this unstable building was because of the global demand for this cheap, fast fashion. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this building, it was an eight-story commercial building in Bangladesh. Um, It led to the death of 1,134 people and over 2,500 more people were injured. So the day before the factory collapsed, there were actually cracks in the walls of the building and the workers were scared. There were, you know, there were serious signs that something was wrong, that the structure wasn't secure. So on the ground level of the building, there were banks and other retail shops. So the ground level workers didn't go into the building that day. And the factory workers were obviously afraid to go in. The management for the garment factories on the upper floors, they gave their workers a choice, quote unquote, uh, to either go inside and work or don't go inside and lose your job. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you going to choose? You're going to choose to go to work. Of course. And then all those people went in and at 9 a.m. the whole building collapsed. Yes. And that building, I mean, if you want to see how greed and corruption can just really go off the rails, it's a really great little example right there because that building wasn't supposed to be eight stories tall. It had never been approved for that. Yep. 
Uh, they were able to sort of skirt it by, you know, bribing officials. They used substandard building products, building materials, in order to save money on the building in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the owner of the building themselves, you know, they were on the news that night, the night that everything had been evacuated, the the cracks had been, you know, cited. And they were like, oh, no, the building's totally fine. It's a false alarm. Yep. And it's just, and they knew if there are cracks in the walls of an eight-story building, that that's is not scary. Yeah, that's that's not like mm, it's fine. Don't worry about it. That's that's really serious. Yes, and I was reading some accounts about how, like, specifically putting a factory on top of you know offices and whatnot is already like not very structurally sound because the machinery is a lot heavier. There's a lot of vibration mm-hmm. and people on lower floors could hear the building like groaning and shaking oh, regularly. So terrifying. Terrifying. It's really, it's just, it's so sad. And, you know, a, again, a big reason that these factory owners and these management companies or, you know, managers feel the need in order to cut costs and, you know, do things the cheap way is because their bottom line needs to be low in order to keep up with our demand. Like mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. you know, it's we we want five dollar dresses all the time, thousands of them. <laughs> and in order to do yeah. that, you you can't be paying everyone really well and putting them in a super safe building and taking good care of anyone. It's impossible. It is. It's impossible. And there was a lot of concern, as there always is in all of these factories, that even missing one day of running the factory would mean they would miss deadlines for the retailers, which are often way like barely accomplishable if truly accomplishable in the first place. And there are major financial repercussions for a factory owner if they're late. For one, the retailer technically, legally, I'm not saying this is ethically, but technically can cancel an order if it doesn't arrive on the due date. Which is just they have that crazy. right. And so that's a major loss. Now, what most retailers will do is say, no, we won't cancel because they need that product to come in probably. Right. But they still might cancel because they might be like, oh, we actually bought a little too much. This will be great. Bye. Or they're going to take a discount every day that it's late of 1%, 2%. It kind of depends what your company's policy around that is. But like, if it's a full week late – we're looking at 14 to 15% of the cost being cut. And it's already and so that, cheap. Like yeah, all, exactly. You're already paying basically nothing for this stuff. So to be cutting into that even more, like there's nothing left. Like what what are what what's left for the workers who made the clothes? Exactly, exactly. And that is the thing. It's like not that I'm taking the factory owner's side here at all because they should not have had people in the building, but I'm sure that they were looking at it as like, if we are closed for a week or however long it takes to get this building in shape, because realistically that building probably needed to just be torn yeah. down, uh, they're like, we're going to lose all our business and all the people who work here are going to lose their jobs. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they were primarily thinking about how they were going to lose the business. But as a side note, all those people would have lost their jobs. And that's because these retailers don't allow any flexibility on date. You know, it's like it's either here or we don't want it or you're going to pay, you know, take the repercussions that we give you for that. And I I mean, I've been on the buyer's side of it where I'm like, I need this order right now because they want to do a marketing story about mm-hmm. it, you know, which is like 
not that important in the grand scheme of things. It's definitely not worth dying over. No, totally not. And I do think like one of the reasons, you know, no one's talk was talking about Rana Plaza at work or even letting themselves think about it too much is you don't want to think that you're complicit in that kind of thing because you're just doing what your boss said. And if that order came in late and they couldn't have it on the sales floor or on the website to go with the marketing message, you your job is in jeopardy. Right. And so it, it sucks for everyone. It's a lose-lose situation. No one can win. As long as we maintain the demand and the cycle that we put ourselves into now, people are mm-hmm. losing out on their health, their well-being, their lives in the worst-case scenario, like at Rana Plaza. Um, and it's just mm-hmm. not worth it. It's not you know, this stuff, all of this clothes, the stuff that we're buying, it is not worth people dying over at None all. of it is it's not worth, worth it. people being yeah. sick. It's not worth people living in poverty, worried that they can't take care of their children. It's just, yeah. <sighs> okay. So <laughs> backtracking a little bit back to <laughs> 1900. So you have this uh, factory fire, um, you know, over a hundred years ago and this kickstarted a lot of striking. So you have these garment workers that are striking, they're protesting, and these these strikes were violent. Um, the factory mm-hmm. owners were often hiring uh, local, basically thugs, to beat people. So that, you know, these jacked dudes, I guess, would show up and just assault people that were picketing and these were women they were assaulting women the police were looking the other way because they were in the pockets of the you know factory owners and on top of that the police were also arresting picketers basically for no reason they would make reasons up or they would you know pick the tiniest infraction and take these people away mm-hmm. so you know there was a lot of corruption and um the so they were they were striking a lot and you know, obviously the strikes were for very simple things like don't lock us into the factory because then we might all die. And then, you know, more complex things like increase in pay, lowering in hours, maybe not allowing small children to work in a factory because that's horrible. Um, <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> this was like they were just fighting for the most basic rights in their work. They yeah. really weren't asking for a lot. They were just asking for things to not be extremely dangerous or exploitative. So there were a lot of tricks that these factory uh, owners would kind of use in order to skirt around, um, you know, paying people or taking care of people. So they would often hire workers on basically you'd be training and they would let workers train for sometimes weeks and you would complete so many garments you'd be working and then after this quote-unquote training period they would deem you unfit or unqualified and then they would say sorry you're not hired and they wouldn't pay you so a lot of factories would be doing things like this where they would just be turning over basically free labor and this was going completely unchecked because who are you going to go to like what you know like cops are you know letting people beat you up and arresting you for no reason so who are you going to seek you know, who do you seek for help? So right. there were also a lot of basically arbitrary systems set up to divide workers into different positions. So depending on what position you were in, you were paid a significantly different wage. And this was pretty much regardless of your actual skill of ex- or experience. So 
at this time, about 70% of the garment workforce was identified as women. So the even though majority of these workers were women, the top positions um, were pattern makers and cutters. Those were almost exclusively male. And below that, the second tier job of an operator was also generally filled by men. So coincidentally, depending on how much skill or experience you actually had, the men had the higher paying, better jobs in this industry for like seemingly no reason. I mean, they still do. Yeah, yeah. And I will say that's like both overseas. When I say overseas, I mean like in factories, the men are in the more managerial positions. Mm-hmm. But even here in the United States, working within the industry on the corporate side, the men always get paid more for the same level of experience. Yep, absolutely. So that was a huge problem. And of course, it, you know, 70% of these workers were women and they were like, this is bullshit. This sucks. Uh, I have just as much experience. Yeah. I am just as skilled as this guy. Why is he making two, three, four times as much money? Yeah, exactly. So that was a huge issue. And another big issue that these garment workers had was the mafia. So (laughs) the mob got their hands into garment work for a couple different reasons. So one of the big reasons was that garment factories are really, they're easy to set up. So they really don't require much except for the machines. And the machines are actually pretty mobile. You, You can move them. So you didn't really need that much capital or that much investment to start a factory. You just needed to buy a bunch of sewing machines and dump them in like an empty room. And bam, you had a garment factory. So... Yep. Because of this, they made really good fronts for like laundering money. So I have a story actually from this union label book that I'm reading. Um, One worker tells a story where basically a mobster purchased a clothing factory. They proceeded to move all of the sewing machines out of their factory directly into the local police station. So they put all their sewing machines at the police station. Like, we're just going to let leave these here for a second. They then filled their factory with burnt out machines that were already damaged in a previous fire. And then they set their whole factory ablaze and collected the insurance claim. Oh, and my God. While their machines were at the police station. Classic. So, like, you know, what are you supposed to do? There's, it's, there's so much corruption behind the scenes. Yeah. Like, what do, you, what do you do? How do you go against that? The cops are, are, you know, hiding your sewing machines for you. Like, where's the authority there? Who, who, who do you go to for help? Right. So that was a really big issue for the unions as well. And obviously, you know, the mob had a lot of power and influence. They had money. They were able to threaten people. Um, You know, they had their hands in the government, in the police. And so all of that corruption made it a lot harder also for garment workers to fight for their rights. I can tell you, in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, older people still count. There's a union retirement check. And for people who never made big money, this means a lot. There are free health clinics. We get all our prescriptions filled for a dollar. We even have our own clubs. We're not alone. That's my union, and that's what our label stands for. Look for the union label when you are buying Marco's dress or bras. Remember somewhere our union sewing, our wages go. Thank you. 
So I have one more story. I'm going to read it directly from the book because it's worth reading. It's really funny. (laughs) Min Matheson was one of the lead organizers of the union. Um, She played a really important role in organizing the union, her and her husband. They had a lot to do with the union's growth, especially as it moved out of New York City. And she tells a story about how a group of women was, uh, they had organized a picket. So these women were going down to an early morning picket line. And so they're in a car. There's about five women in this car. So they drive up to the corner where they were getting ready to picket. And on the corner, there are all these, she calls them tough guys. (laughs) So she says, (laughs) uh, her friend says, I don't think we better stop because we're outnumbered. What were we, five women in the car? And I said, this is Min speaking, um, Helen, no matter what happens today, we have to stop. Because if we don't turn up today, this may hurt our chances to get this town organized. We have to just put up a very brave front, I said. But we have to think of something spectacular to worry them like they think they're worrying us. So they couldn't figure out what to do. And they didn't really have much time to talk because these guys saw the car coming. So... They stop in front of the factory, and the next thing you know, these women get out of the car, and they just start screaming. So Min says, I got out of the car, and I said, you rotten hoodlums, what are you doing in this town? You don't live here. We live here. This is our town, not yours. And you do one little thing to hurt these women. So all the other women start screaming, and next thing you know, the windows are opening up in all of the surrounding buildings and people are sticking their heads out and Min says they're witnesses to anything you think you're going to do. And honestly, the men almost went crazy. It was like, my God, how can you do anything with a bunch of crazy women like that? They were walking (laughs) around, waving their hands, putting their hands over over their ears, not a squeak out of them, nothing. You see? So I always said the women defeated them. (laughs) and later she's got another story about a group of men who were verbally accosting her they were calling her a slut and telling her that she was unfit to lead that branch of the union so she decided that she was going to phone union hall asked a friend to collect a bunch of preschool girls put them in brightly starched pinafores and deliver them to the picket line. So she brought all these sweet little children and had them hold signs and basically was like, okay, call me a slut now in front of all these little girls. Go ahead. Yeah. I like these tactics. And you know, it was interesting because it, it took this sort of really smart organization to fight back because at the end of the day, like they were, they were groups of women going up against violent men. And they scared them off just by yelling. I mean, that's amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's really cool. So she, Min, was um, one of several children who was raised by her parents. And her father was actually like a major union figure as well. He had organized in a bunch of other unions and had raised his children very much in like a pro-union, pro-labor household. And her brother was also um, in the same union as Min, and he did a lot of organizing as well. And he was a dress presser in Manhattan Garment Factory, and he was an executive on a dress pressers uh, group in New York. So one day, he was 35, he um, was a father, he had four kids, so one day he uh, goes into a building on West 35th Street in Manhattan's Garment District, he's placing a phone call. 
1949. So he steps into the booth and he's like looking for change. And three men later described as tough looking characters entered the lobby. Two of the men stood watch while the third forced open the door to the telephone booth and plunged an ice pick into Whoa, Will's chest. I did not see that coming. Yeah, he was bleeding profusely in the lobby. A few other garment workers rushed over to help him, and he later died of his injuries in a hospital. And um, later on, there were witnesses that claimed that they recognized the men as local mafia members. It was these two Italian men, and one of them uh, just never – he was never apprehended. The other man was brought to trial, and during like halfway through the trial, the eyewitnesses suddenly didn't recognize him and of didn't course, know who he was. Classic. Yep. And he was acquitted. And um later, like several years later, he was then killed and Min and her family were investigated for the death. So this was this was really serious stuff. Yeah. Like this you know, being a part of this union, standing up against these forces, it wasn't like Oh, these ladies yelled at this guy and then they went away. It was, it was, you know, people were being killed over this. It was really, it was really dangerous to be a part of these unions at this time. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, once again, it's not like they're fighting for something crazy. They're saying, hey, like we want to be safe at work. We want to be paid for our work. We don't want children to work. Yeah. (laughs) They're really not asking for, you know, they weren't like, I don't know. It was nothing crazy. They were at this point, like they were barely even asking for benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, her brother was killed. Um, she did briefly step back from her responsibilities of the union, but eventually came back. And she really dedicated her, her and her husband dedicated their entire lives to building the union, to helping their fellow laborers. And, you know, once her brother was killed, um, like, Hundreds of thousands of people went to the funeral in New York. Um, basically, all of the garment workers in the city took the day off and showed up at this funeral and went to stand in his memory and basically vow to continue their fight. And, you know, in his memory, like his death wasn't for nothing. You know, they were going to continue fighting and everything he had sacrificed was going to be worth something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... At this point, the union was pretty big. Again, it was primarily in New York. And um, like I had mentioned before, garment factories are actually relatively mobile. They're relatively easy to set up. So because of this, as the union began to get stronger in New York, factory worker, factory owners realized that they could just leave the city and they were going to be able to get away with a lot more. Good Lord. Yep. So they were like, okay, the union's getting pretty powerful here. People are kind of starting to like ask for rights, you know, and the workers want to get paid fairly and like, oh, we don't want to do all this. Like, God forbid. So they were like, let's just pack it up. So they started, you know, more and more factories started to pop up um, in the surrounding areas outside of New York. Uh, There were a lot in Jersey, um, in Pennsylvania. And then later on in U.S. history, you would see them start to move further south and then also out um, into California around the L.A. area, which is still a major uh, stronghold for garment work in the U.S. So in this book, particularly, it outlines um, the move of factories into the anthracite region of Pennsylvania. So at the time, a lot of Pennsylvania, um, which I think is 
probably in around the area that you live in, it was a big mining area. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of coal miners. And as the demand for coal lessened, a lot of the mines closed down. And so all of a sudden you had all of these miners who were out of work. So these factory owners realized, okay, if we go to these mining towns and build garment factories and the men don't have jobs, they've got families to feed, the women will go to work for like basically nothing because they're so desperate. So all of a sudden you had all of these factories (sighs) popping up in these areas and these women really didn't have much of a choice, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's no job opportunities for your husband. You've got kids to take care of. And if you don't take this garment job because they're not paying you enough or they're not treating you well, what else are you going to do? Right. So these factories really took advantage of that. And of course, being outside of the city meant that it was a lot easier to kind of hide these conditions from the powers that be. You know, these unions were not going to pop in. There was a lot less um, of a sense of kind of community and camaraderie because people were further apart from each other, unlike they were in the city. Mm -hmm. So this was really big. And of course, the union realized that it was really important for them to continue their growth out into these areas in order to protect these workers. So at this point, the union um, started to really like increase in their membership. And there were a few reasons why this union in particular was so successful compared to other U.S. uh, labor unions. So one of the things that they really focused on was cultivating a culture that uh, valued mutual association and camaraderie. So there were a lot of community measures that were put in place by the union. Um, They basically did this primarily through uh, healthcare, entertainment, and philanthropy. So these community measures were put in place, um, one, to favorably sway the general opinion of the union. It would help boost support and membership. Um, It would also increase the morale and foster community amongst the members. And then most importantly, it would just improve the quality of life for the workers and their families. Mm -hmm. So the union would often organize events like blood drives. They would raise money and they would use their resources to give back to the communities. And this would simultaneously earn them admiration and support from people outside of the union. So favorable opinions of the union and its members, that meant support from like political figures, local business people, and other people who had a lot of sway in the government and in, you know, smaller, more localized circles. So, for example, um, the union hosted an event and the ticket sales helped raise money for families of miners who were killed in a deadly mine collapse. That's amazing. So, yeah, they did this sort of community give back and, you know, it, it did a lot of things for them. It helped them feel like they were participating in mutual aid and that they were giving back. But it also really helped people. It helped them create this kind of really good reputation in their communities as an organization that was helpful that people, you know, wanted to be a part of or wanted to support. So healthcare was a really important issue for the union. Um, Garment workers were pretty notorious for being in poor health. And this is something you had actually discussed on the podcast recently with one of your guests about how a lot of common labor issues like overworking or working in bad conditions, whether that be physical or psychological, that'll make you sick. Yeah, literally sick. 
Yes. So garment work was really prone to making people sick. Um, it was really common for workers to have tuberculosis, anemia. Um, they'd be just in generally poor health because they had really inadequate diets. Um, obviously, there were you know there was a lot of injury working with machinery and you know scissors and needles. So this is all very common around factory workers. So the union actually opened multiple healthcare centers, both here in New York. Um, they had a really, really large one in Union Square for a while, and they opened another major one in Pennsylvania and then several other smaller ones. So these healthcare centers were really unlike anything else during this time. Um, they were widely hailed as being revolutionary and life-saving. These centers were not like fully functioning hospitals or medical facilities. Their purpose was more to um, offer like preventative and diagnostic services for workers and their families. So they offered routine physicals, x-rays, cancer screening, allergy tests, um, gynecological services, and then different like health education outreach programs to remind community members to, um, you know, do routine breast exams for cancer. And they encouraged all of the workers and their families to get annual physical checkups. And this really just helped people maintain their health and also catch problems sooner, which everyone knows that that's like how you get better. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, like I wish every job offered that because I feel like even today for a lot of people actually having the time and access to healthcare is so, it's so difficult because everyone's working so much. It's really, really hard. And then, yeah, it's expensive on top of that. And, you know, now obviously it's it's really hard now. You know, who takes my insurance? Yeah. And it's, yeah. So this, this was really huge for them. This was something that they really pushed for. And, you know, a large part of your union membership and your union dues would go towards paying for these healthcare services. When we didn't have the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, we didn't know from day to day whether we had a job or not. It was a hard way to live. That's why we worked to get the union. We need something to count on. We're working fair hours for fair pay now. The ILG gives us a chance to better ourselves and our kids. That's our union. And that's what our label stands for. Look for the union label. sort of uh, community measure that they really invested in that I find super interesting and I think it's super overlooked is that they invested a lot into entertainment. So the New York City branch of the union had a like relatively famous theatrical troupe and the union in Pennsylvania had a really successful and well-known chorus. So these, basically this type of entertainment, it did a lot of things. So it you know, the, the shows that they would put on became a popular social event so they could, you know, raise money with ticket sales for their philanthropy efforts. 
Um, these groups also served as like a creative and artistic outlet for the union members. And that really helps people with their general well-being. Um, and I think it's so interesting that then in, you know, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, they were able to identify how important having that sort of fun and creativity and <laughs> sense of community, like that's so, it's important to being well and healthy. That's amazing. We don't think of art or creativity as being essential. We don't mm-hmm. think of it as being something that you need to do, but I think that it it's just so helpful to people. And so they were putting on these shows. And another big thing that these shows did was that this type of entertainment, it would help spread the word of their cause in a way that felt really engaging and memorable to the audience. So you have to think about during this time, there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't smartphones, you couldn't like take a TikTok in your factory and be like, look how shitty my factory is. And like, it would go viral and all these people would, you know what I mean? Like that wasn't a thing. So like, how did you, how did you approach the general public and get them to really understand what your struggle was like? You know, there, there there were only like a few, you could maybe write a book or you could really, you know, hand out a pamphlet, but like how effective is that really? So by putting on these performances, basically the unions, they created original productions. They would write musical scores. They would wow. do one plays. <laughs> and these performances would reflect the struggles of garment workers in a way that people could really sympathize with. And it made it real to see these women get up on stage and act out, you know, the, the, the struggles they had been through and how difficult their job was, you were, were, would be so much more impacted by that than you would be reading a pamphlet. Yeah. yeah. So these outlets were very, very important. And it seems funny to be like, the plays were super important, but they were such an, a good way for them to really spread the word. And the chorus would also oftentimes write original music that was basically centered around like, and they would write a song that encouraged people to vote. And then they would go perform it around town. And it sounds funny, but you're like, that that sounds actually really effective. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is very ahead of its time. I'm it, thinking about all of this. Yeah. And um, it, even doing all of this service for the community, like – that's what brands and like, you know, just big corporations try to do now, but in this like bad faith way right. to, uh, you know, make them like lift up their brand. Like it's like genius branding, actually. It's really, really smart. And then, you know, on top of all of that, you have, you, you create this sense where you're now, you're part of something that's bigger than you. And it's not just mm-hmm. about your job because, and this is something you talk about on Clothes Horse, that you're more than your job. You're not yeah. what you do for a living. That's not who you are. And so by being able to participate in this creative outlet, you now have friends and you now have people that you're doing something that you're really enjoying and that you're passionate about and you can do this together. And it goes alongside with your work in a way that really helped people feel dedicated to the union and feel like, you know, they loved being a part of it and it was very important to them and they were very passionate about the cause. And this sort of entertainment was really helpful in creating that sense of community. So 
One of their best-known plays is called Pins and Needles. Ooh, um, it was good. a musical review, and it actually ran on Broadway from 1937 to 1940. Okay. So this was like serious, you know, serious theatrical performance. I mean, this is pretty major. Yeah. They <laughs> performed Pins and Needles in the White House for Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt in 1938. Wow. And the show has been re- – it was revived in the 70s, in 2010, and then actually in 2016, they um, somebody put it on in, in New York City. Um, to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the show in 1962, uh, Columbia Records released a studio recording of the show's soundtrack, and they decided to feature a industry newcomer by the name of Barbara Streisand. Wow. I mean, this is like A-list. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and that's the thing is that, that took it from – you know, like these ladies were, they were factory workers and they were able to create something, bring it to the White House and perform it for the president. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, that would never happen now. Do I think that it should happen now? 100%. Absolutely. So um, the other big thing that the union did that a lot of other unions did not do was they were really big on communication. Mm-hmm. So there was a period in time where they actually owned multiple radio stations. They had a radio station in New York. They had one in L.A. and they had another in Tennessee. Um, in the 1940s, uh, Min Matheson and her husband founded a periodical called Needlepoint. And that ended up being a really widespread publication. And it included articles that would discuss uh, strikes, organizing drives, voter registration, political issues, Um they would discuss local events. They would have letters to the editor in which members of the union could write in. And there was even a section that included poetry and short stories just about life and work and family and community. And that was also another really important way to connect all of the union members. Again, this is a pre-internet era. So mm-hmm. you know, you've got if you've got hundreds of thousands of members all in different places, like these sorts of measures were so important in fostering that sense of feeling like you belonged to something bigger than you. And that was part of the reason that the union was so successful. I mean, I would say a modern adaptation of this strategy um, might be surprising for you to hear is Costco, because Costco puts out a magazine that has one of the widest subscriber basis of any magazine that currently exists. And I mean, I don't know if a Costco magazine came to my house if I would read it or not, but it gets crazy reading and it makes people feel like they are part of this like Costco community. Okay, I will admit I have fully read the Costco magazine (laughs) because my dad is a Costco stan. He loves Costco. He's so passionate about it. He owns stock in Costco. Wow. Oh. I mean, I love Costco. So I'm, I'm, you know. Everything he buys is from Costco, including his clothes, which my mom's not. Wow. That's a tough one. one. That's a tough mission. Um, and <laughs> so it's really funny. My parents actually just moved. Uh, my mom's from Japan and we lived in Japan when I was young. Um, my parents actually just moved back to Tokyo recently. And, you know, Obviously, they were both excited to be back in Japan. My mom has family out there. And, you know, they're sending me pictures of, you know, the temples and the cherry blossoms and the food they're eating. And then, of course, the thing that my dad's most excited about is the Costco in Tokyo. (laughs) 
physically <laughs> finally went to Japanese Costco. Like, oh my gosh, I want to know more because I bet it's like, good. I get mega sized snacks, and I, it's, it's, I'm like, really? That's that's what you're excited about? Is I mean, I'm low key <laughs> jealous. I, uh, I mean, the best thing about Costco is the snacks for sure. But imagine them in Japan. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think Costco you know, it has members, right? So it's different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that they're selling a stuff, they're a retailer, whatever, but it really sells itself as less of a place you go shopping and more of a like organization that you belong to, right? Well, and it's it's a whole experience. It sure is. You you know, you go and everyone that works there is generally like, you know, pleasant and enthusiastic because they're being treated mm-hmm. well by mm-hmm. the company. Like they have a really good reputation for treating their employees well. So people that work there are actually pleasant and don't hate their jobs. And, you know, you go in and of course now with COVID, I'm sure it's different. I live in New York now, so I don't go into Costco anymore. But back in the day when I used to go, you know, it's it's the, the samples and the, the new products. Yeah. And I don't know, it just always felt like a whole, it was a whole I thing. The samples. Actually, Ugh, I miss going I to Whole Foods for samples because you could like have a light lunch on a Saturday. A bougie lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't wait till the day that samples come back. But yeah, I mean, Costco is actually like embodying a lot of these ideas that the union was, I mean, c- creating. You know, like I, yeah. I am interested. I'm just thinking, like, how many people who work in marketing now? are looking back at the way the union was marketing itself because it's genius. It's really, it's so smart. And, you know, again, a lot of this credit goes to Min Matheson and her husband. They were so set, especially her. She was so set on making sure that she was fostering this idea of community. She did not want the union to be just about pay and about hours like she knew that it was so much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. And she was so focused on what can we do to expand this? What can we do to create this sense of being a part of something that's more than just your job? And something that we forget to think about is that, you know, this stuff outside of what you're doing at work affects your work also. Mm-hmm. Being in good health, uh, having a, a, a hobby that you're passionate about and being able to, you know, be part of this theater troupe that you love and, you know, doing philanthropy for your community and giving back, like all of those things make you a better person. And then you're also able to take that with you to work. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, that stuff like doesn't matter. It doesn't help. Like employers should be looking into these things for the workers' benefits, but also for the company's benefit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Some of the like big tech companies sort of do that. Like I think about like Google, you know, how they have like healthy gourmet foods and all these other things that people can do on campus. You know, I mean, there Mm -hmm. I feel like the goal is to keep people at work as much as possible. But I also think that there is this idea that what you do outside of work affects how you work. And being able to have opportunities to, I don't know, have other identities outside of worker, that's really important to being happy with your work. I mean, so is being paid and having benefits and safety and all of that. But like when you have all that lined up, next is like, what do I do with my free time? You know, am I helping the community? Am I doing something creative? That's important too. Yeah. And so to have a way to, 
you know, have that be organized for you in a way that was really easy for you to participate in with the people that you know, and the, you know, your community members you're comfortable with, and you can bring your family, like, that was really important. And it, it just, it helped really boost morale for union members, and it helped increase membership to the union. And it was really, I think that was one of the biggest reasons why this specific union was so big and so successful compared to other mm-hmm, unions. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It really made a huge difference. So, of course, you look now and the union no longer exists, um, which the good thing about it from a purely selfish vintage seller standpoint <laughs> is that the union tag lets me know that a piece is vintage. So I you know it's very yes, it's very sad that the union is no longer a thing, but I do love seeing that union tag in a thrift store. Um it is amazing because it just it's a really quick way to just be like, okay, cool. This is definitely vintage. Um, there are three main labels that were used by the union during their time uh, that were standardized, and those represent uh, specific time periods. So just by looking at the label, I can be like, okay, great. This piece is 50s, 60s. Um, so I love that. I think it's really awesome. But of course, you've got hundreds of thousands of members in this union, so you have to wonder like, what happened? So, um, like we had, I'd mentioned before, you know, not a lot of capital is required to start a factory. Um, they're very easily moved and relocated. So this mobility allowed these runaway shops to continue popping up further and further away from the stronghold. So, you know, first they started in the anthracite region of Pennsylvania, the union kind of followed them out there. So these factories just started creeping further and further away. A lot of them went to the South and more of them started to pop up in LA So uh, in like the post-World War II era, the union lost around 300,000 members because of shops migrating further away and overseas manufacturing Mm -hmm, increasing. mm -hmm. Another big thing that you would see is that as the industry spread, um, more of the workers were being made up of new waves of immigrant populations. So the union's power was declining at the same time that you had a lot more um, immigration and migration from Central America, from Asia. And you'd find that during this time, the leadership had a lot less in common with the workers than they had Mm -hmm. before. The membership was physically scattered and there were a lot of cultural language barriers that actually imparted this rift um, within this this organization that had been really communal. So you have that. And then a lot of the workers um, in more modern times were undocumented. And this really increased the workers' hesitation to wanting to, you know, be a part of something like this. Understandable. Yeah, it's a really big risk to pick it, you know, if you're an undocumented worker. That's really scary. You're putting your life on the line. And a lot of people, you know, were not prepared to do that, which is totally understandable. So you saw a lot of this towards the end of the union. So by 1995, the, this is the last time I'm going to say, the International <laughs> Ladies' Garment Workers Union merged with the Amalgamated Clothing and Textiles Workers Union, which was an, the other like major clothing right. union. It was significantly smaller, but it was also big. Um, so they merged in 1995 and they formed Unite, which is a much more um, – 
palatable acronym. Yes, thank goodness. (laughs) Yes, it stands for the Union of Needle Trades, Industrial and Textile Employees. So interestingly, and not coincidentally, this merger happened one year after NAFTA. Mm. So I had brought this up in a previous episode with you. Um, The North American Free Trade Agreement was an arrangement that basically combined the U.S. apparel industries with those in Mexico and Canada. And it was supposedly created to compete against the increase of manufacturing in Asian countries. Mm -hmm. But then going against these intents, it actually just ended up kind of being the final push in like ending the garment Uh. industry here. So, you know, I had gone over some of these numbers the first time I was on the pod um, because they are pretty important in helping identify vintage garments. Mm-hmm. But um, we had talked about the decrease in garment manufacturing here in the U.S. So in the 1960s and before, 95% of garments sold in the U.S. were made in the U.S. So this was basically everything. The only thing that was being imported was like specialty high-end goods. So you'd have like, you know, a really fancy like Italian couture gown or like really beautiful silk embroidery from like China or Japan. But other than that, everything was being Mm -hmm. made here. So by the 70s, you're down to 75%. You're at 70% by the 80s. And then by the 90s, you're not 50%. So that's half in 30 years. Yeah. And so then from the 90s to the 2000s, which is, again, NAFTA, it happens in 95, right in the middle of that, you go from 50% to 29%. And then now we're at 2%. 2%, guys. Yeah, it tanked really quickly. And once – manufacturers realized that they could just push their garment work overseas, you're now avoiding all of this union stuff. There's no one to protect these workers. These workers weren't organized. They were willing to take, you know, significant pay cuts to what the American workers were demanding. So this, you know, this push overseas just basically put an end to this long history that we've had here in America of a textile industry. So by 2004, um, you're now looking at like 20-some percent of clothes being made here. Um, The Unite Union merged with the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union. Smart, because there's a lot more of them. Yes. So they formed Unite Here, which is also very nice and catchy. Um, and so, yeah, at that point, there were so few garment workers in the U.S. remaining that they needed to combine forces with other laborers in order to maintain any kind of power. So that was um, – I can't remember what exactly happened to Unite here. I do not believe that they're still I, around. They I might have changed names again. Let me look. I don't think they are. I think when I was looking into this – oh, no. They they still are. Yes. Okay. Um, it seems like now, I mean, not surprisingly, right, their focus is hospitality. It says that there right. are 300,000 active members, which is not very much. Okay. Um, and that's in the United States and Canada in total. And it's the union's members work predominantly in the hotel, food service, laundry, warehouse, and casino gambling industries. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like it really shifted. Obviously, hospitality is just a way bigger industry here now. Yeah, yeah. We still have tons of that. You know, I've worked in hospitality for the last 10 years. So that's very much a thing here. And as far as garment work goes in the US, um, 
And there's very little of it being done now. And a majority of it is being done in LA. And like I mentioned before, a lot of it is being done by undocumented immigrant workers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that, you know, adds an extra layer of complication. And how do you safely and effectively organize this group of people who are scared for their lives, and their livelihoods? How do you? Because, you know, this this is the challenge there because I, I want to make it clear that these people are working for almost nothing. Um, they – I mean, they're living in poverty. And yeah. some people tend to think that you hear made in the USA because now you know that only 2% of our clothes are made here. Mm-hmm. You think, oh, that's like the premium stuff because you think of like the premium denim or like mm-hmm. artisanal stuff, right? But a lot of fast fashion – is being made in LA right now. Like I've worked for fast fashion companies that were buying clothes that were made in LA. There used to be more of us in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, but a lot of our jobs have disappeared. A lot of the clothes Americans are buying for women and kids are imports. They're being made in foreign places. When the work's done here, we can support our families and pay our taxes and buy the things other Americans make. That's what it means when the label says union. Look the union labels when you are buying lacrosse dress or blouse remember somewhere our union sewing our wages going I I was actually laughing with a friend recently. We saw this big old pickup truck driving in New York, and it had a bunch of really unsavory bumper stickers. Um, (laughs) And one of the stickers was buy, you know, buy American made or buy made in USA or something along those lines. And based off of the other stickers this person had on their car, I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that their immigration policy probably does not align with my personal views on immigration. That was what I was imagining. It all adds up. Yeah. So I just, and I find it so funny that I'm like, you have this sticker on your car to buy made in America. Do you realize that most of the American made clothing that you're buying is being made by Central American immigrants who are being exploited? You're right. right. Like, like, I don't think you are really thinking through what buy American made means. Every once in a while, someone will come in like the like you know how the Kool Aid Man like busts through like a brick wall. <laughs> someone will come yes. into something I posted on Instagram like the Kool Aid Man. Someone who's not like a regular member of our community just to tell me that the problem is that we don't make enough stuff in the United States and that they only buy American. And it's like, dear, please, Kool Aid Man, let's sit down and have a heart to heart about these clothes you're buying that are made in the USA. Yes, there's a tiny percentage of those that are being made ethically, right? But most of them are not. Absolutely. Yeah, and just because they were sewn here doesn't mean, like, where'd the fabric come from? We don't have a lot of fabric mills here. Yep. Um, And the fabric mills that are here are really expensive and generally focus on denim. So this is not this is not the fix right now, right? Like, I would love for us to bring the garment industry back to the United States, but that is just... 
it's probably not going to happen. Not in our lifetime. I mean, we we as consumers would need to be prepared to take on the costs of bringing that work here. It would be a lot more expensive. So right now, um, one of the big issues that garment workers in the LA area are facing is that these workers are under contract that allows them to be paid by piece instead of an hourly wage. So by paying people by piece, you're A, forcing them to work like extremely hard to get Mm -hmm. their money. You know, like you have to just really, really push yourself to get paid anything. And it also, it allows these employers to pay below minimum wage because you're a quote unquote contract worker. Mm -hmm. So it's like this loophole, this legal loophole that allows people to be paid like nothing. And no benefits, you know. No, it's crazy because, you know, as I was looking, I was looking over the statistics and the numbers for what labor work looked like in the early 1900s in New York City pre-union. Like, I was like, how bad was it really? What were the conditions like? Like, factually, numerically, what did it look like? And you look at the amount they were being paid and there's still people basically working for that same amount of money here and overseas. Oh, for for sure. Like, it's not better you, now. That's horrible. Obviously, the cost of living in different countries is lower than it here is, is here in the United States. But of you have course. to remember that those people aren't even being paid a living wage. But for people in, say, Bangladesh to be paid a living wage is still substantially less expensive than paying someone a living wage here in the United States. It's just, Absolutely. I mean, think about the costs we have to try to cope with every day with like education, healthcare, housing, et cetera. It's a problem we've created for ourselves in many ways. But right. the people making clothes in LA are being paid in line, maybe not the same exact like down to the sense, but in line with, with what people are being paid overseas to live in this much more expensive country. And as the buyer who's been on the side of like, okay, we're going to order this bodysuit. I specifically remember this happening a lot when I was at Nasty Gal because we would do some of our like intimates, like loungewear kind of stuff. We would have that made by a vendor in LA. So it would be sewn there. I'm, once again, I'm sure the fabric came from China. Mm-hmm. And we were always like, ugh. That vendor is so expensive. Like, yeah. can we try to get it made in China instead so it's just a little bit cheaper? And it would—it was always like a timing issue. But it would be like, oh, uh, if we if we get this bodysuit here in LA, it's going to cost us eight dollars. But if we got it made in China, it would be four. Right. And I just to give you an idea of like there is there is a cost associated with making stuff here, even when you're not paying people a living wage. And so I can't imagine a world in which we bring garment work back to the United States. But you know what? We can make garment work better for the people around the world who do it and in LA. Absolutely. And the thing is too, is that like, so, you know, you've got these workers in LA, there is a very small group of people still working in New York and several other cities in the US. And these are also the most expensive places in America on top of I all. know. It makes no like sense The cost to me. of living in LA is insane. Yeah. I used to live in California and you used to as well. I have a lot of friends that live in LA and their rent is like relatively comparable to what I pay here in New York, which is obviously an insane amount. Everyone knows it's bananas expensive to live here. So these people are somehow supposed to afford living in LA 
They're supposed to get themselves to work and back, which anyone who's ever been to LA knows that tr- like getting yourself anywhere, it sucks, mm-hmm. um, no matter how you're doing it. And then, and they're, and they're also not being paid a living wage in a very expensive area to be in. Yeah. And I mean, I will tell you that, you know, if you go to visit LA or even if you've lived there for a long time, you see some of the economic disparity, the wealth disparity in that city here and there. But largely it is hidden from your view because it is very focused on certain neighborhoods that are are, are on the outskirts of the city, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you don't drive through there, you're never going to notice. And at ModCloth, we did a mentorship program with a junior high in South LA, like Southeast LA. And these these kids, a lot of their parents were undocumented, at least one of them. There were a lot of mothers who were working in the garment industry, sewing at home. And these are people who would be 13 years old and had never left their neighborhood in LA. Right. Like the, like they're just they don't have they can't. You know, they yep. don't have the they don't have a car. They don't yep. have the money to go to Hollywood. This one of the students I mentored was like, "What's it like in Hollywood?" And I was like, "Oh, you've never been there?" And she was like, "No, it's 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 so far away." And the the idea for me of someone living in LA making pennies to sew clothes, to sew bodysuits for Nasty Al or whatever and trying to exist there. I mean, it everything is so expensive and difficult there. It makes me almost cry imagining trying to live there to survive with so little. I I just I can't. I don't know how people do it. We they shouldn't have to do it. Part of the solution is about pushing for legislation. So you've got organizations like the Garment Workers Center, which is based in LA, um, and they're working really hard to push for government intervention that that basically makes it so that these loopholes aren't allowed, so that people are not allowed to be paid per piece because that shouldn't be, you know, like no one should be able to do that. So that's a part of the issue is just preventing these sorts of exploitation tactics from being used in the first place. And then the other so part of the solution is to just decrease our consumption. Mm-hmm. We are consuming mm-hmm. at a rate where the amount of labor required to maintain our demand is just huge. Like we mm-hmm. we're like we need all of this stuff. Someone has to make all of that stuff. They have to grow the cotton and make the fabric and the buttons and the zippers. It's insane. It's so much stuff. So, you know, we need to be organizing, fighting, donating your time, donating your money to these labor organizations that are helping from a governmental and legislative level to help protect these workers. And we also need to be mindful of our consumption. We should A, be consuming less in general, you know, and this is something you obviously talk about all the time. And I feel like I went on a whole rant about it the last time I was on the podcast. <laughs> no, it's like repeat it again. You know, when we were talking about Rana Plaza, I was about to start off on a rant there. But like, it's good for us to be having these conversations and say, look at Rana Plaza. There is a direct line between what happened there and the rapid, rampant overconsumption of fast fashion, the constant need for new stuff as fast as possible. If you bought something from Zara from 2010 to 2013, there is a chance that that garment was made in Rana Plaza. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, like, like you might – you might own something that was made by one of those 
factory workers that was killed. And that sounds like, you know, oh, like it's not pointing fingers and saying this is your fault or you did this, you know, like shame on you for buying that Zara top. That's that's not the point. It's the fact that we are all connected in this and it's not a far off distant thing that's happening to someone else. Mm-hmm. We're part of that. We're we're all in this system together and the amount that we consume and how we consume does have a direct link to these sorts of incidents and like why they're happening. Yes, yes. And like if you feel sad or angry or guilty or anything as we're talking about this, you know what? Lean into that and use that feeling to make some changes, to get loud about it, to tell your friends, to be active, to donate your time and money. We have to change this. This can't go on forever. And I, I, you know, I've bought a ton of fast fashion in my life. I know you have too. We all have. Absolutely. Yeah. We didn't know better, right? But now no, I bought so much crap from so many horrible companies. And oh my God. Yes. And this is something that you've yes. discussed too on the podcast before is like I'll still occasionally buy things from a company like that because at the end of the day, like we do need things. And right, you know, I'm right. not buying underwear secondhand. Um yeah, like, sorry, but I do want new underwear. Um, and, you know, things like socks where, like, you just – there comes a point where you cannot wear a sock any longer. Like, I'm all for, right, you know, right. mending and taking good care of your clothes. But, like, you can't, you know, sew all the holes in your sock shut and keep them going indefinitely. That's just not going to happen. No, so, no. you know, it's not about nothing at all ever again. It's just really stepping back and thinking about this stuff. And putting it in the forefront. And at the end of the day, knowing that this is happening and choosing to ignore it is a great privilege. Yeah. To, you know, not to kind of hear it and shake it off and go about your day and not feel like you need to do anything about it comes from such a place of privilege because the reality is that hundreds and thousands of workers, and most of them are women, and they're mostly women of color. Um, you know, they don't, they don't get to ignore this stuff. This is their lives. They don't get to be like, oh, that's so sad. And then just like, keep doing whatever it is they're doing, you know, like this is, this is their lives. This is the world they live in. And it's not going to change. And it's not going to get better if the consumers don't do something about it. It's true. The thing I hear all the time is like, yeah, but why is it my job? And I'm like, yeah, I agree. It sucks that it's our job, right? Like, it shouldn't have to be this way, but unfortunately, it it is. And so I can't just say, you know what? It's too big of a problem. It shouldn't be my responsibility. It's the big – it's the companies, the corporations, their fault. Why do I have to do anything about it? And then I should continue shopping and living my best life and going to brunch or whatever. But – that's not going to change anything, and that's only going to make this worse. And unfortunately, that attitude that it was like out of sight, out of mind, not our problem has exacerbated this situation because it's kind of given all of these retailers carte blanche to do whatever they want. And Absolutely. we don't care. We're like, oh, I heard – I hear Zara was using Uyghur labor. Well, anyway, I've got plans this weekend. How many dresses can I buy from them? Like, no. We have yeah. to stop. We They have to feel – the repercussions, and that involves us. That involves us giving them a hard time about it, not shopping with them, spreading the word, getting involved with community organizations that are fighting to make things better. And we we can't, we just can't keep putting it off, you know? 
it also goes hand in hand with so many other issues that people are really passionate about. And I think that people also fail to remember the overlap that garment work has with a lot of these other issues. So if you're really passionate about racial justice, if you're really passionate about environmental issues, that the garment work is part of that. You know, like people are really, especially now, you know, with activism on social media and, you know, reposting things on stories and this sort of brand of like hashtag activism, I guess, that's happening right now. People are really quick to get behind certain things because it feels like very palatable and easy. It's easy to post on your story like, you know, stop Asian hate. But if you actually get into the nuances of that, you have to think, okay, if I actually want to, you know, support the Asian diaspora, if I want to support Asian women, there are ways that I can actively do that by being mindful of my consumption because so much of our apparel is being made by exploited Asian women. You know, it's, it's, it's all, it's all interconnected. And I feel like garment work is such a big problem that it feels very intimidating and people don't think that they can kind of fold it into whatever cause they're already passionate about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it goes back to this idea that people think fashion is its own thing. It's not that important. Um, It's just like a silly thing. And really it embodies all these other terrible things. I mean, it's very intersectional. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To look at what's going on with garment work, whether you're an environmentalist, whether, like you said, you're fighting for racial justice. If you're out there wearing a feminist tee right now, you better be caring about this. Yeah, because it's know? women that are doing this work, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. If, yeah. If you are a feminist and you care about all women, then you care about the woman who's thousands and thousands of miles away from you that you're never going to meet that doesn't speak the same language as you that's being forced into terrible conditions to make you your feminist tea. Like you should yes. care about her. She matters. Yes, exactly. And exactly. then also just in terms of cutting down on consumption as well, like, you know, and this is something that you discuss as well, but it also goes a lot into the life cycle of clothing after we're done with it. So you've got these garment workers who are putting everything they have and often sacrificing their lives in order to make us this clothing which we then in turn dispose of. And then that gets shipped over by the bale to places like Ghana, where people are then tasked with sifting through all this stuff that we don't want. And that also, you know, plays into it being a global issue and a racial issue. And we love buying too much stuff and then just sending it away. Yeah. Out of sight, out of mind. Not okay. We can't do that. That's not acceptable. And yeah, it's there's just a lot of layers there and it's all interconnected and it's so essential that we look at the history of groups like the Ladies Garment Workers Union and other organized labor forces and kind of learn from, you know, what happened, why did they why were they dissolved, how can we use these tactics and employ the lessons that they've given us to benefit workers in the future and yeah, it's all relevant and important now, even if it took place 100 years ago. Totally. I mean, I'm already like, how can I integrate these tactics into clothes horse? Like, do we need to put on a garment workers play? Oh, my God. <laughs> a <laughs> musical about, un- about reducing your consumption? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it is really interesting, though, to think about that because, like, you know, like, for example, a Hamilton was such a Oh, huge- my God. Okay. 
I was knew you were going to say Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. like people and. Uh, I, I've never seen it. Sorry. Me neither. Me neither. But out there, I am one of those people that lives in New York and doesn't ever go see Broadway shows at all because I'm just <laughs> that asshole. Sorry, guys. Um, it's okay. I hate, I actually, I'm just going to say this. I hate musicals. I understand that many people love musicals. That's great. There's something about them that really pushes my buttons. But Hamilton made people get into American history. Yes. And like, you know, I've read a few think pieces, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with the version of history that Hamilton portrays. <laughs> That's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> however, it was able to get a bunch of people to be like super passionate about a bunch of like old dead people that yeah, really, so- they, they're not. It's not pop culture relevant until Hamilton came around. Exactly. And I feel like that is just a testament to the power of entertainment that these ladies yeah. were able to literally write a play about garment work and <laughs> make it so interesting and so engaging that they took it to the White House. So should we make a musical about <laughs> reducing your consumption? I mean, if you hate musicals, maybe someone else should make it. <laughs> I don't know if you're the one. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting it out there, guys. I mean, if neither you, am I. But Yeah, but like if someone out there wants to write a musical, we will like totally support you and promote it. And we'll come see it, okay? We'll like it. <laughs> Begrudgingly, just like clapping. I'll be like, people don't break into song in real life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, but it's so cool and so innovative, and yeah. it was something that the other unions weren't doing, and it was so effective. And this book that I'm reading has um, it has a lot of photos, which I actually I'm going to try and scan some of the photos and maybe put them on Instagram so I can share them with people. Cool, um, but it's yeah. got these old photos of these ladies in the union, and of course they're fabulously dressed. They've got their like 50s dresses and their hair is all done, and it shows them participating in these events. And you know they're in the chorus and they're you know, they're raising funds to help children at a hospital and they're doing all these things. And like, you can just see in their facial expressions and their body language that these women, they look like they believed in what they were doing, that they enjoyed what they were doing. And that beyond increasing their quality of life at work, the union just generally benefited them and made their lives better. And I think that's so valuable and so rare. Uh And I was really struck by, I was listening to a recent episode where you had had a caller um, who spoke about her experiences working at Disneyland. uh, Mm -hmm. And she, she was basically like the union was kind of this shadowy group that it sounded like she felt very detached from it. Right. Because she had not had a specific dispute or complaint that she needed the union's help with she never actually like quote unquote used the union for anything and instead felt like she was paying these dues to an organization that was like taking money away from her check that she really needed and i think that the ladies garment workers union was like the opposite of that 
in that they were very present and very felt and every single member was benefiting from it in some way, whether that be healthcare or being part of this entertainment group, or even just like if you weren't part of the theater troupe, you would still go to the performances and it was a social thing and it was fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really important. And I think that the suburbanization of America has really distanced everyone and it's interesting because this is going to be my last book recommendation. <laughs> I mean, I'm loving the book. Sorry for being such a lit nerd. Um, I read a book <laughs> last year uh, called How to Kill a City by P. Moskowitz. Mm-hmm. And it goes into gentrification and it basically uses uh, several U.S. cities as examples for how gentrification happens, the causes of it, the effects of it, et cetera, how a lot of it is racially motivated and um, a lot of city planning and urban planning is inherently racist and classist. And Mm -hmm. America is one of the only countries that has like so many suburbs where people are intentionally distanced from each other. And Mm. a lot of these suburbs were created purposefully during a certain time in America, and part of the reason it was done was actually to prevent people from organizing. Because you have all these people in an urban center where <sighs> even if you live on the outskirts of the city, you can still get to the city. There's still public transportation. There's buses. There's trains. There's ways you can get in. Right. And people are spending all this time together. You know all your neighbors. You're eating lunch together. It's a lot easier for people to picket, to organize, to form unions, to protest and join together and have power in numbers where as if, you know, you push everyone away from each other and you put them in these suburban environments and you place this really strong emphasis on your home, Mm -hmm. it separates everyone. You're now on your property and your home and your lawn. And this is the line where my property ends and your property starts. And you get in your car and you go to work and you don't talk to anyone. And you are so much, you're so much less likely. And you also have a lot less time because you're now spending time potentially commuting in and out of the city that you're no longer organizing. You're no longer banding together with your community members and your coworkers to fight for a cause because you're in a little bubble now. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's so smart. It makes sense. And it was very tactical. And, you know, there was a lot of like government propaganda, again, talking about the power of entertainment. There were movies that were made that were basically peddling this suburban American lifestyle to make it appealing to people. Like, oh, I saw this cute movie where this family was so happy in their house and they had all these fancy new appliances and it looked great. Maybe we should move to the suburbs too and have these things. And It pushed people out of the cities and it, you know, being away from the city, you're away from other people and you're also away from seeing the things in society that should be affecting you but aren't. Like you don't Mm -hmm. see homeless people. You don't see sick people. You don't see people in different situations in life than you are in your suburb. So it becomes like it's not my problem because you don't see it. Well, right. And you get a lot of that like NIMBY, not in my backyard kind of symptoms, if you will, where you don't want anything. The suburbs very much have helped foster this very strong sense of individualism, which is very much an American thing. And, you know, it's led to a lot of the problems that we have now. 
you we saw so much of it in this past year of people being um, like, yeah. it's all about me. It's all about my family. Yes. It's all about me being comfortable and no one wants to make sacrifices for other people. And it's really interesting to think that a lot of that was intentionally perpetuated by the government, by people who are doing city planning and urban planning in ways to yeah, basically control the population and get us to just go into our little boxes and shut up and do our jobs and be part of this capitalist machine and not to be super like conspiracy theory <laughs> or anything crazy, but like it worked. Look at us now. Yeah. I mean, this year has shown how individualism is like a disease that Americans have. Mm-hmm. People not wanting to wear masks, people refusing to get vaccinated, people having no understanding of why things need to be closed down. Uh, yeah, there's just, we've really, we've lost our sense of community. We've lost our sense of belonging and being a part of something greater than ourselves. And I think that the union did a really good job of exemplifying that and bringing that to like smaller towns and to more suburban areas. And I think that it's, I think that a version of that is possible now. And I think that we should be aspiring towards these communal efforts and towards enmeshing our lives with the lives of people around us, whether they be physically around us or distantly around us, you know, things like clothes horse, I think are so important and so vital in enacting change. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think it's about rebuilding community where it hasn't existed. Yeah. And I think that like these communities are going to be the way forward and it's going to be the way that we help fight for people that are being exploited still. And, you know, one person going up against these big companies and these big factories, like you're just yelling into the void. But when you band together with enough people, you know, you can be like Min Matheson pulling up in her car and yelling at the strong dudes until they ran away. <laughs> I know. What a hero. I, you know, and that it's, it's simple and it's funny, but like there's something to be said for yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I still love the story of bringing all the children <laughs> yeah, um, right, and like dressing them up in their starch. I love pinafores. it. I love it. I'm giving them picket signs, and you know, being like, "Okay, go ahead, call me a slut now in front of these little girls in their beautiful dresses." You know, go for it. And they were shamed as they should be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, that's awful behavior. This this whole book, there's a lot of really bad behavior from the men in American society. I want this book. You have to send me the information. I have to have it looking back on this history is super important so that we can kind of reflect on the lessons and learn from what they did and try and draw inspiration from that. And yeah, the better world is possible if we just work towards it together. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, that's a great way to end our conversation, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Alex, for doing all this research and, uh, teaching everyone so much today. You're so welcome. I hope uh, people found it interesting and inspiring. And, um, you know, I think that we spent so much time in, especially if you're raised in America and you're in the public school system, we spend a lot of time talking about like old white dudes being violent towards each other. And history is so much more than that. And there's just, I don't know, I, I, 
didn't think I liked history until I was older. And I realized that these stories aren't just things that have passed. And, you know, even though it was a hundred years ago, it's still relevant now. It's still important. It's still funny and interesting and engaging. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And it's still, everything that happened then is still playing out now. You know, Um, you have to understand the past in order to understand what to do next, which I'm, you know, I'm sure someone has said before, but I do think like we have weird experiences with history in school that make it really boring, that make it not relatable, that make it all just about like memorizing so you can get the grade and be done. I think I learned about Lewis and Clark like five years in a row. Oh my, I was telling someone the other day that I took uh, AP history and AP American history in high school and 75% of the year we just talked about the American Revolution which is like that's some white dude history right there <laughs> like I mean, also just like the smallest blip in global history like, I know it, it was I know. Such a short <laughs> period of time that like that that's it we're just gonna look at that tiny tiny chunk of things that happened to some people in one part of one colonized land and we're just gonna ignore everything else like right right meanwhile like even just the stuff that's happened since world war ii has set the stage for things like 9-11 and what's happening in afghanistan and china Mm -hmm. and like we don't we like we never talked about anything really post-world war ii in high school including the vietnam war which you know people that i went to school with like maybe their uncles or grandfathers or, you know, maybe their dads, depending on how they, old they were, fought in Vietnam, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. It's just so bizarre. Um, anyway, yeah. So history is fun. Everybody should read history. I feel like there's a lot of really great history podcasts now. Um, you know, go see Hamilton. It's a start. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there there is definitely, you know – way more to history than the things that you're taught in school. If anyone wants any book recommendations on a specific topic, I may or may not be able to help guide you in the right direction. I wrote a piece for the Close Horse blog mm-hmm. that is going to complement this uh, pod episode. Yes. And yeah, so I, I talk a little bit about um, the union tags specifically, just like how they were used and how they were implemented in the factories and what they look like. There are some examples in the article that show the tags during various eras. And yeah, I'm going to try and scan some of the photos from this book also and share those. Yes, I want to see them. I'm really excited about this. It's really nice to be able to see the faces of these women and I don't know, like they were real people, you know, and to be able to look at them and appreciate what they did and what they fought for. I also read that Min Matheson was one of the founding members of the National Organization of Women. Yes, she was. That was um, that was like her later work when she was a little bit older. She kind of worked forever in the community. Such a badass. She dedicated her entire life to fighting for laborers, fighting for workers, fighting for women. She was just super awesome and someone I had literally never heard of before I started. Me neither. <laughs> and yeah, I'm like, why are we not learning about people like her? In I school? know. That would have made school way more interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, she time. was rad. Her husband was also a great guy. He would like recite lines of poetry randomly that he just had memorized. That was back when people would do that. Yeah, and he was like – 
apparently just a very like sweet, gentle man. And he helped do a lot of the writing for Needlepoint and organized a lot of the speeches. And, you know, they were just both really awesome people. And I'm like, these are the people we should be learning about. In 1961, only four out of 100 women's and children's clothes were imports. Today, it's one out of three. A lot of jobs gone someplace else. We're the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, and we make our living making your clothes right here in America. So when you're out shopping and you pick something with the union label, we thank you. That way, the jobs stay here. Look for the union label. When you are buying a coat dress or blouse, remember somewhere. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming back to the show again. I'm pretty sure this is the third time. What a treat for all of us. As Alex mentioned today, that is Wednesday, the day this episode goes live. So you might be listening to it on a different day. Alex has a special vintage detective column about the ILGWU at closehorse.world. So go check that out. And I'll include all of her reading list suggestions in our show notes. I actually already ordered the book about the ILGWU here in Pennsylvania. And I'll tell you, it looks like Thrift Books, which is my favorite place to buy books, by the way, has several copies. So go get it. I'm wondering, like, do we need to start a book club? Because honestly, I've been wanting to be in a book club my whole life and it's never happened. (laughs) Anyway, I feel like we went on a huge journey in this episode. But I want to reiterate something that Alex and I revisited a few times in our conversation. This so foolish idea that fashion isn't worth caring about. That it's a silly, vapid flight of fancy. Or conversely, the idea that fashion isn't political. That pointing out its systemic flaws is just ruining the fun. You already know how I feel about that, right? The fashion and retail industries employ millions of people around the world. Most are paid poverty wages. Most of them work under poor conditions, which we've talked about a lot here on the pod. If you care about human rights, if you want to end poverty, if you dream of a more equitable world, then you need to care about fashion. The fashion industry and the way it works today has a very strong impact on the lives of people. Most of these workers are women of color. They experience sexual harassment and physical and mental abuse while on the job. They're denied sick leave, maternity leave, and really any benefits. Are you anti-racist? Do you call yourself a feminist? Then you need to care about fashion. And side note, please just go examine who made your feminist tea. <laughs> of the world's total carbon footprint comes from the fashion industry. The water volume consumed by the fashion industry in 2017 alone was enough to fill 32 million Olympic-sized swimming pools. I I can't even wrap my brain around that. That's so much water to make clothing in one year. 
and 20% of the global wastewater is produced by the fashion industry. I mean, we're talking one industry that so many people think is so silly and unimportant, having a massive impact on our planet's health. Don't get me started on all the plastic waste, the fossil fuels that we are using to create you know, synthetic fabrics and all the packaging. And ugh. If you care about our planet, if you care about animals, if you worry about climate change, then you need to care about fashion. So I know all of you care about it or you wouldn't be listening to this. So my question to you is, what action are you going to take? You're going to go out to people around you who think that what we buy and where we buy it is no big deal or just for fun or silly. And you're going to tell them everything I just said to sway them to caring about it because that's what I want us to do. That's what we need to do. We need to educate and motivate those around us. We need to share with them. We need to show them why this is so important. Let's grow this movement because there's so much power in numbers and we just need to get more people to know the truth. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, you know what I'm going to say. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Don't forget, you can find me on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And every Friday, I'm doing an Instagram Live. I know I haven't done it for the last two weeks, but my in-laws have been here. There's been a lot of yard sales. It's yard sale season. I, I'm so excited about yard sales. Anyway, <laughs> I will be doing one this Friday. Um, I, there's so much to talk about, right? So I will be asking for your questions on Thursday, as I normally do. And, you know, I'm going to talk about our upcoming episode for next week where Carrie is interviewing me. So see you on Friday. <laughs> also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And if you need a new podcast, which you might, I feel like I get into podcasts, I get out of podcasts, I get back into them. Check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. She did a really cool episode about value, and next week we're going to be talking about values. But trust me, we have some really fun stuff planned. I really loved our internet dating series, and we've got some other episodes in our back catalog that are really insightful and funny, and also it's just nice to hang out and talk to Kim, even though like you know, we're separated by 3,000 miles. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye.